Hello and welcome to chapter two of Deep Diversity. Uh, it's, it is Monday. I'm working by myself. I'm chilling. And so I will get this one started and see how we do. Um, chapter two is called Emotions, Understanding Ourselves and Others. Crisp Winters, Burning Women. Oh no. The photos on the website are inviting. They show the kind of small-town pastoral splendor that's like catnip for city dwellers like me. Flowing rivers, lush forests, kids and horses, and even a beautiful white church with tall spires. The site goes on to say that, quote, The surrounding countryside is reminiscent of times past, lazy country summer days, crystal-clear streams and lakes with cold, crisp winters in an unspoiled environment. End quote. Wow. I'm in. Sign me up. Clicking through the site, I find something called the town... The cha Oh my god. I find something called the Town Charter, which has been approved by the mayor and six council members. The declaration includes a section entitled Our Women. Hmm, interesting. I scroll down and read. <clears throat> it says this. We consider that men and women are of the same value. Having said this, we consider that a woman can drive a car, vote, sign checks, dance, decide for herself speak her peace, dress as she sees fit, respecting, of course, the democratic decency, <laughs> walk alone in public places, study, have a job, have her own belongings, and anything else that a man can do. These are our standards and our way of life. That's the end of that uh, little blurb. This is starting to sound somewhat unusual. <laughs> is it? What is it? Perhaps the website of a commune or a retreat center with pseudo-feminist leanings? The last line, though, really throws a wrench in the works. It says, However, we consider that killing women in public... Oh, God. Content warning. It says, However, we consider that killing women in public beatings or burning them alive are not part of our standards of life. Wow. What part of the world could promise both cold, crisp winters and a strong rebuke against burning women advertised in the community's code of conduct? Confused yet? Welcome to Eruville. Canada. Population, 1,300 people. In 2007, this community in the French-speaking province of Quebec made national and international headlines when it passed the now infamous Irouville cha Town Charter. The, uh, the original charter even forbade the stoning of women. The context? No local or regional cases of such gender-based violence prompted the town's charter. It seemed a not-so-subtle not so message targeting immigrant groups, specifically Muslims. But immigrants, and people of color generally, are almost non-existent in this very white region of the country. So where was this coming from? There were no actual experiences or problems in the region, let alone the village, which might have motivated the town charter. We are left to speculate why the town council would take such drastic steps. I'll leave that question hanging for a moment, as the actions of this small town were a harbinger of things to come on a larger scale. In the following years, this prompted a fiery debate across Canada on immigration and racism. Subsequent governments seemed to draw pages from the Eroville playbook, both inside and outside the province. This included Stephen Harper and his Conservative Party, who campaigned in 2015 on creating a police hotline to report barbaric cultural practices, taking a hardline stance in Harper's bid to be re-elected Prime Minister of Canada. He lost to Justin Trudeau. Christ. In Quebec, by 2019, this debate culminated in the passing of the Lacity Act, a, pl a bill that promoted an extreme form of secularism in the name of neutrality. The centerpiece was banning the wearing of all overt religious symbols, including Muslim hijabs, uh, Sikh turbans, Jewish kippahs, and 
large Christian crosses by public employees, including doctors, teachers, government officials, and daycare workers. Legislation was even passed that banned face coverings when even receiving public services, but this law got hung up in the courts as it so obviously targeted and discriminated against Muslim women. Harassment of minorities and dramatic increases of racism resulted throughout these years, including property damage and ugly confrontations with racial slurs and physical assault, and peaked it with a horrifying mass shooting in a Quebec City mosque in 2017, which injured six people, were, or in which six people were murdered and 19 others seriously injured, all Muslim. <clears throat> On a macro level, the trends in Quebec were similar to those of Donald Trump, who took anti-immigrant sentiments to a whole new level of toxicity during his four years as U.S. president between 2016 and 2020. He described Mexicans as criminals, drug dealers, and rapists, and also suggested that all Muslims in the U.S. be registered and tracked, a concept chillingly similar to how Jews were marked with gold stars during the Hitler era in Germany. One of his very first executive orders was to ban entry of immigrants and refugees, predominant, or specifically from predominantly Muslim countries, including those fleeing from the brutal Syrian civil war. Similarly, hate crimes skyrocketed under the Trump administration, with impacts felt by many, including Muslim, Jewish, East Asian, and LGBTQ2S plus communities. It's not a surprise, then, that Trump's consistent attacks on Mexicans correlated with a 41% increase in hate crimes against Latinxes during this tenure or his tenure, including a racially motivated mass shooting in El Paso, Texas, that killed 23 and injured 23 others in 2019. In fact, European researchers used data to demonstrate that Trump triggered a global racist contagion as hate crimes spiked upward in many nations, including Austria, Belgium, Canada, Czech Republic, France, Germany, Israel, Poland, and Russia. The UK was part of this upward trend, with a record-breaking 10% jump in hate crimes reported in 2019 alone, with 76% of these being race-based offenses. Christ. <clears throat> Although there are different circumstances and histories between the context of Quebec and the context of the U.S. under Trump, mainstream media analyses also identified some overlapping themes, including the amplific amplification of anti-immigrant prejudice, Islamophobia, and the urban-rural divide. Some political observers suggested that the divisive tactics used by Quebec's center-right government, Coalition Avenir Québec, and the Republican Party under Trump, were gambles on the part of desperate political parties with aging and shrinking support bases. Aging and shrinking. Yeah. <laughs> Gross. Mobilizing conservative, mostly rural voters was strategic, as these people had the strongest ties to the traditional white Eurocultural heritage amplified by each of these political parties. But what I found most what I find most relevant to the deep diversity discussion is that in this conversation, fear was a critical undercurrent. But why is fear so easily triggered? When it comes to dealing with those whom we perceive to be cultural outsiders, why is it so easy to evoke feelings of anxiety, suspicion, or even panic? The emotion of fear, often present in these situations but usually invisible, opens a way to examine the broader, unseen role emotions play in our encounters with who, those who are or are perceived to be different than us. Investigating the fear response allows us to expose a key, under, a key underlying factor that powers us versus them and thereby weaken it. This dynamic can manipulate us into being reactive rather than thoughtful, resulting in choices that can hurt our relationships and communities. We'll also discuss how the inner skill of self-awareness can help us identify what's happening internally so that when it comes to is issues of racial difference, we are better able to respond rather than react. I'll focus on Eruville and its town charter to make this point, as this micro-example more easily demonstrates the larger patterns seen in the U.S. and globally. Similar emotional dynamics play out whenever us versus them emerges, whether within institutions or in broader society. Developing emotional literacy. 
In the 1990s, psychologist Daniel Goleman helped popularize the principles of emotional intelligence. Since then, a considerable library of materials has developed on the purpose and power of emotions and their controlling yet invisible role in our lives. Developing our emotional quotient, EQ, has become widely recognized as critical to personal and organizational success. EQ is regarded by many to be as important as IQ, the traditional measure of intelligence which is now outdated, which is a side note from me. In daily life, emotional intelligence can be defined simply as how well we as individuals manage ourselves in relationships with others. This sounds deceptively simple. Most of us believe that we handle ourselves pretty well and would likely say that we're good at managing our relationships. Where a relationship is not easy, even while accepting some responsibility, we're likely to point out and we're likely to point to shortcomings in the other person. They're angry, self-centered, and insecure. It's rare that we notice how our own actions, tone, or behavior may have contributed to or instigated the problem. <clears throat> Even when we pay lip service to the idea that we're not perfect, we put our energy into finding fault in the other. Through this exercise of fault finding, it's difficult to see the other person or the other person, the other people clearly. Our unconscious motivations, bias, fear, and history, our emotional baggage, gets in the way. This is especially true regarding issues of diversity and intergroup differences. Emotions play a crucial role in the us-versus-them dynamic. Feelings are at the root of our actions, whether we're aware of them or not. Um, a significant portion of our decision-making lies below the surface of our awareness. That's why developing emotional literacy, literacy is critical. From a mountain of good literature on this topic, here are three ideas that are, that are helpful for understanding the unconscious and automatic nature of emotions as they are relevant to issues of racial difference. <clears throat> One, tilting toward or away. We are inclined to tilt toward or away from things in our environment. This is also called the approach withdrawal system. Whether we're aware of it or not, we tend to tilt toward those most like ourselves and away from those we perceive to be different. Two, emotional contagion. The contagious nature of emotions and the open loop structure of our nervous systems mean we are designed to regulate each other. When we feel included, we tend to soar. When excluded, we tend to underperform, second guess ourselves, and in extreme cases, get sick. And three, emotional triggers. The midbrain region, called the limbic system, modulates our emotions. The amygdala specifically alerts us to dangers in our environment. Strong emotional triggers can activate the fight-flight-freeze-fawn response, reducing our ability to think clearly, especially when dealing with those who are racially different than us. Uh, so then he expands a little bit on each of those. Um those three ideas. So we have tilting toward slash away, emotional contagion, and emotional triggers. So first we're going a little more in depth into tilting toward or away, our survival instincts. The primitive nature of our brain is well established in research. It was designed to survive physical threats and emergencies more than anything else. Although that function may have suited our ancient cave-dwelling relatives who lived in small violent groups, <laughs> It can be problematic for interconnected globalized societies in which billions of people are attempting to live together. Like other animals, we have a very simple survival orientation, tilting either toward or away from things. Generally, we're attracted to tasty foods, pleasant smells, friendly people, warm blankets when we feel cool, and cold drinks when we're hot. At the same time, we will jump away if we, see a if we think we see a snake, dis express disgust at rotting foods and animals, <laughs> pull our hands pull our hands back from a hot fire, and generally avoid erratic or dangerous people. <laughs> I'm just... The wording of express disgust at rotting foods and animals. Like, are the animals rotting? Or are we expressing disgust at animals? What's happening? Not relevant. Anyway. 
According to social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, both tilts are part of an elaborate mechanism to help us keep our physical and emotional states in balance. The approach withdrawal system develops from genetics as well as social and environmental factors. That also applies to our relationships to human groups based on identity. We gravitate to those who are most like ourselves and are shy or fearful of those who are different. There's an exception to this general rule, which we will explore further in the next chapter, that members of lower class or lower status groups, sorry, may often prefer those from higher status groups rather than those of their own group because of the dynamics of power and socialization. Negative tilt is stronger than positive. It's important to note, however, that the two tilts are not created equal. The tendency to withdraw is more powerful than the tendency to approach. We have what's known as a negativity bias, which primes us for avoidance and remembering the bad, even when it's outnumbered by the good. From my experience working with people, whether with junior high school students or with senior management teams, I find they will spend much more time discussing, for example, what went wrong at the end of a project rather than, rather than what went right. It's rarely proportional. The negatives are almost always given far more airtime than is deserved. The positives are skimmed over relatively quickly. Neuropsychologist Rick Hansen describes this phenomenon as the brain's tendency to be like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for, pars for positive ones. Okay, so we so negative experiences stick and positive ones slide off. Is that phenomenon, I guess? Of course, people don't need to have advanced psychology degrees to figure this out. It's why political smear campaigns are so effective and why news reports seek to attract an audience by focusing on what's going wrong in the world. Well established in research, this negativity bias is much less overt than a conscious thought. It exists instead at the subtle feeling level. It's also closely related to fear, which is believed to be our oldest emotion. As a result, we recognize expressions of fear on faces more quickly than happy or neutral ones. Our brain structure related to emotions, the amygdala, is... Sorry. One brain structure related to emotions, the amygdala, is quickly activated by fearful faces, even if they're not registered consciously. The impact has also been shown in relationship to diversity. Greater negativity arises when we're dealing with those we perceive to be different than ourselves, especially racially. We can track this tendency back to early humans. It would have been an, it would have been an evolutionary advantage to tune into danger, fear, aggression, and general negativity expressed by unfamiliar people who may have been a threat to survival. Much research, which this chapter and the next will expand upon, demonstrates that we generally tilt toward those most like ourselves while tilting away from those who are different. This impacts our choices of where we live, work, and play, and whom we choose to be part of our social networks. For example, just northwest of Toronto in the suburb of Brampton, where my family lived for many years, a massive influx of South Asians has taken place since the 1990s. This group now makes up almost 40% of the population. In fact, people of color are a majority there, making up over 60% of the population. Similar to Birmingham, England, many people with roots in India and Pakistan have made this place their home, drawn to a city that has a lot of people like them, a tilt toward. Orange County, California has about 190,000 people of Vietnamese ethnicity, centered on a community called Little Saigon. Such ethnic enclaves, Chinese, Italian, Greek, Polish, Jewish, are extremely common and have always existed in some variation in most large cities. On the other hand, white flight describes the phenomenon in which white people have left Brampton and other North American cities, uh, city cores in significant numbers. London, England, has been a white minority city since 2011, with an estimated 600,000 white people having left over the previous decade. <clears throat> Uh, many felt uncomfortable with their place in the increasing ethnocultural diversity, a tilt away, preferring more homogenous white communities in, and small towns outside the city, again tilting toward. 
In the context of Eruville, negativity bias and the tilt-away phenomenon might help us understand how the fear of difference became so easily activated, even when there was little local experience with immigrants or people of diverse backgrounds. The town charter seems to have emerged from a defensive posture, a wariness of imagined immigrants. Um, okay, so now we're on to the next idea, uh, emotional contagion. Being controlled by the moods of others. There's a quote here from Daniel Goleman from Primal Leadership. I'm assuming it's a book. I don't know. The open-loop design of the limbic system means that other people can change our very physiology, and so our emotions. End quote. Emotions surround all human dynamics, influencing our interactions on conscious and unconscious levels. Many experiments demonstrate that feelings are contagious. They can be transferred between people, like catching a cold. Our heart rate, blood pressure, and mood, for example, are easily synchronized with others in our vicinity. Those who are emotionally dominant can transfer their mood to others without effort, prior history, or words spoken. These effects, refer generally, referred to generally as emotional contagion, occur with family and friends, in boardrooms, on the shop floor, or when dealing with cu clients or customers. Emotions spread quickly and easily, influencing interactions in our private, public, and, pro and professional lives. The physical form of our bodies can convince us that we are a series of self-contained units, closed loops that are separate entities from other people. Although there is some truth to this, otherwise we'd be leaking blood and fluids everywhere we went, it's also partly an illusion. Neurologically speaking, we're considered open-loop systems. Our nervous systems are designed to co-regulate, to tune into and intermingle with each other's physiology, making neural connections. Specifically, our emotions play a significant role in our biochemical regulation. We are designed to regulate and be regulated by others. By design, we are also exquisitely sensitive to social pain, such as exclusion or ostracism. In the words of neuroscientist Matthew D. Lieberman, quote, when human beings experience threats or damage to their social bonds, the brain responds in much the same way it responds to physical pain, end quote. <clears throat> Lieberman's team was the first to demonstrate that social and physical pain areas overlap in the same region of the brain. Kipling D. William Williams from Purdue University has shown that even brief experiences of exclusion during the playing of something as insignificant as an online pass-the-ball computer game can result in strong emotional reactions. Participants demonstrated unusually low levels of belonging to groups or society, diminished self-esteem, and lack of meaning in and control over their lives. Why this is important is that humans come equipped with an instinct to survive. The foundation underlying the primal drive for food, water, and shelter students are taught in basic biology class. In many ways, the experience of social exclusion promotes a visceral survival threat response within all of us, because deep within our neural circuits is the evolutionary knowledge that to be excluded from the tribe means a low chance of survival and increased likelihood of death. The upside to this neural connection is that joy, positivity, calmness, and rationality can also be transferred between people. Emotional intelligence research has clearly shown that when individuals or groups feel positive and upbeat, everything tends to go better, including creativity, problem-solving, productivity, understanding complexity, and predisposition to being helpful. The downside of our ability to co-regulate is that other emotions like chronic anger or anxiety or a sense of futility can also be transferred, damaging relationships and hijacking our work or professional environments. Generally, when we're upset, stress hormones are secreted that may take many hours to be reabsorbed by the body and fade. They impact our ability to rest, sleep, and recover. In a toxic workplace, for example, where conflict, distrust, or dysfunctional relations are the norm, not only is productivity reduced, but the health impacts on employees can also be significant, resulting in sick leaves and absenteeism. In Canada, it is estimated that, that stress-related absences cost employers $3.5 billion annually, while in the U.S., that figure is ballparked at $300 billion. Similarly, in the UK, stress costs businesses about $34 billion yearly. 
side note, uh, it's so weird to put numbers, put a value on people that are st on people's stress. Like, uh, I, something, I don't know, I have feelings about that, I don't know. Um, okay. Leaders set the emotional tone. According to emotional intelligence research, leaders play a role in how people feel. In a group, they serve as emotional guides. Leaders' words and reactions carry more weight than those of other group members. They are watched more carefully and are given more eye contact. We take many of our cues from those in charge. People in positions of authority generally set the tone for appropriate group behavior, especially in times of uncertainty, rapid change, or conflict. For example, leaders who are able to stay calm during a crisis can settle group members. Uh, a manager who demonstrates mild anxiety or hesitancy may communicate to the team that something still needs careful thought or attention. Leaders can inspire us, evoke our empathy, or fuel our patriotism and anger through a call to arms against an enemy. The quality of leadership, therefore, plays an influential role in our lives with both negative and positive impacts, including in the context of cultural differences. Coming back to Eroville, there's some evidence that one of the town councillors, uh, a strong anti-immigration activist named André Drouin, likely, or he did, play... Excuse oh my god, I can't read. Coming back to Eroville, there's some evidence that one of the town councillors, a strong anti-immigration activist named André Drouin, played a leadership role in drumming up support for the Charter, and likely fear. Drouin, the key spokesperson for Eroville regarding this issue, was known to speak bluntly, referring to multiculturalism as idiocy, and demanding a moratorium on immigration to Canada. He was responsible for drafting the controversial legislation and asserted that he brought this issue forward intentionally to make Eroville a case study in a broader international anti-immigration movement. Drouin's anti-immigrant anti bias was accompanied by great passion and purpose. Given that he had a significant leadership role, he was an elected town official after all, it wouldn't be outrageous to suggest that he served as the emotional guide for Eroville's fearful and defensive tilt-away posture that resulted in the unusual code of conduct. What leaders say and do matters, whether in a small town or on the global stage. In the context of the U.S., the words of Donald Trump, his well-documented exaggerations, lies, and attacks on opponents, divided and damaged public life like no previous president. From the minor, his falsehoods about the large size of crowd at his inauguration, to the dangerous, like denial of the seriousness of coronavirus and suggestions to treat it with bleach injections, to the catastrophic, such as his propaganda campaign about how the 2020 election was stolen when he lost to Joe Biden, through all of this, most of his followers believed him, and the consequences are still beyond dire. Americans have become so distrustful of government, opposing political parties and each other, that U.S. democracy itself is in peril. There's a lot more in peril than just democracy there, but or and here, North America. But, yes, yes. Emotional triggers. The role of the amygdala and limbic system. To, okay, so we're still, just to, um, just to quickly touch base again we're still covering we're getting more information about the emotional contagion um, concept uh, to understand emotions and their origins we need to back up a bit and revisit the brain it's believed that our brain evolved in stages resulting in three distinct sections known as the reptilian limbic and neocortex from an evolutionary perspective the reptilian brain is the oldest and most primitive part of us it regulates our automatic functions such as breathing heart rate startle function swallowing and a host of other tasks that are essential to basic survival the next region in line to develop was the, the limbic brain a feature we share developmentally with other animals or mammals sorry this part of our brain is responsible for the share and care parts of our personality it is critical for nurturing and defending our young as well as vocal communication play community empathy and socialization 
The youngest brain region to develop was our neocortex. This is the metaphorical home of our conscious mind. Thinking, attention, abstract reasoning, fine motor skills, and language are rooted here. The prefrontal cortex, the section encased by our foreheads and behind our eyes, uh, is particularly important. It's believed to be the brain area that determines our capacity for emotional intelligence. The prefrontal cortex is responsible for a variety of executive functions, uh, including setting goals, planning, directing action, and guiding, as well as inhibiting emotions. The home base for emotions is in the limbic region. This part of the midbrain houses many structures, including the amygdala, which constantly scans for threats and is the trigger point for the body's flight, the fight-flight-freeze mechanism. Rick Hansen describes the amygdala hub succinctly. So here's a quote from Rick Hansen. Moment to moment, the amygdala spotlights what's relevant and important to you, what's pleasant and unpleasant, what's an opportunity and what's a threat. It also shapes and shades your perceptions, uh, appraisals of situations, attributions of intentions of others, and judgments. It exerts these influences largely outside of your awareness, which increases their power since they operate out of sight. End quote. A perceived threat by the amygdala can set off the body's fight-flight-freeze mechanism, uh, a survival response to fend off an incident that may be life-threatening. The automatic response easily overpowers the thinking part of our brain. In this state, we become very reactive. This can work in our favor and help us, for example, jump out of harm's way from a car or a snake, say. But it also has drawbacks. For example, the amygdala can misfire when we interact with those who are different than us. It has been shown to be activated when we relate to those of a different race, suggesting that a potential cascade of negative unconscious feelings and bias are also at play in racial interactions. Recall from chapter one that there is already a tendency to demonstrate less empathy for those different than us, and especially in the case of racial minorities. Integrate this or integrate into this mix our built-in negativity bias, and the outgroup cocktail keeps the brain scanning for threats, amplifying other unpleasant feelings such as anxiety, anger, frustration, shame, or guilt. Because we don't seem to have an equally strong automated response mechanism for positive inputs, we have to work harder to keep track of the good things. The result is a tendency to judge, to misjudge members of other racial groups, treating them unfairly. My experience of consulting inside of organizations for many years highlights, the, highlights some very common patterns. That members of minoritized groups, black, indigenous, people of color, people uh, with disabilities, or those who identify as LGBTQ2S+, are less likely to be hired, advance, or be promoted as compared to their more normative counterparts. These groups often face greater criticism, harassment, and discrimination while receiving less acknowledgement of their successes, as well as minimal, minimal professional support via coaching, career planning, or mentoring. Unless we develop pattern recognition skills to identify and disrupt these manifestations of subtle racism, thinking will often take a backseat to feeling when dealing with, the, with those we perceive as different. In the social context we've discussed, the aggressive fear-mongering of leaders like Trump fed the overactive amygdala responses and likely played a role with the average Egoville resident or U.S. Republican, respectively. And why wouldn't they? There's much in the social background that primes people to feel on guard, wary, and frightened. Much of the population across industrialized nations like Canada, the U.S., and the United Kingdom have felt financially insecure due to the impacts of 40 years of neoliberal economic policies. Since the 1980s, wages have been stagnant for average people while expenses have only gone up. Part-time and precarious jobs have replaced full-time employment with benefits and pensions, something that is especially true in rural areas and specific regions, uh, whether the northeast of England or the U.S. Midwest, previously the manufacturing industrial heartlands of each nation. Research shows that the gross domestic products, GDPs, of Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. have grown somewhere between four and six times larger from 1980 to 2020. In spite of the GDP, generally considered a nation's annual income, growing so much, the economic outcomes have not been equally distributed. 
the rich are richer, the poor poorer, and the middle class in these and many other Western nations has shrunk significantly. Shockingly, life expectancy is declining in the U.S., considered the world's greatest economy. According to research by evolutionary biologist Peter Turkin, such gross income inequality historically has nurtured great social unrest, revolution, or civil war. In such contexts, people feel desperate, and this emotional state is fertile ground for intergroup conflict. Scapegoating and snake oil salesmen selling simple messages of hate as solutions to complex social problems. Intertwined with this social social backdrop is also the history of 9-11, the so-called war on terror and related propaganda. Media stereotypes of Muslim peoples as dangerous, backward, democracy-hating, fanatical, and violent have been prolific. With stories like that about a group of people who are religious, cultural, and ethnic outsiders, how could the emotional cores of the people of Eruville, like those of the rest of the Western world, not be overactive? Similarly, the hateful anti-immigrant rhetoric of Donald Trump and his allies landed easily in the troubled ears and unsettled bodies that were already seeking answers as to why America was no longer as great as it was in their memories. The feeling make it, makes it easier to put Muslims and immigrants into the mental categories of threat, barbaric, violent, or criminal. Develop, developing a town charter to protect your community or building a giant border wall with Mexico, therefore, could seem like rational choices even when there's little evidence of any actual real threat. And this is why emotional literacy skills are so important to issues of diversity and political differences. They allow us to discern what are real versus imaginary threats. If we do not develop, if we do not develop these skills intentionally, we risk living our lives on autopilot, our choices and behaviors governed by unconscious habits and fears. And when we're on autopilot, we may, we may default to using the most readily available stereotypes, thereby living in a state of guardedness and suspicion. We tilt away rather than toward those who are different from ourselves. Body language is our early warning system. To state the obvious, emotions exist at both overt and covert levels. When we get angry, sad, or happy, the feeling has to break our particular personal threshold before we become aware of experiencing the emotion. Before that threshold is reached, many of our feelings remain hidden within our unconscious. And that's a problem because without our full awareness, those emotions influence our behavior, thoughts, and choices. But there is a way to get a jump on what's happening to us inter uh, internally, to notice body language and tone of voice, both in ourselves and in others. The feelings we don't express overtly are often conveyed through our bodies. Um, for example, researchers have known for some time that people express their bias regarding racial others by sitting farther away from them, making less eye contact, and displaying increased facial muscle twitches. These signs indicate high levels of anxiety or nervousness. Unconscious body language is difficult to control. It may demonstrate our tendency to tilt uh, away, f away, away from rather than toward outgroup members. Even actors who are trained in the art of body language are often unable to hide their racial bias. A brilliant study led by Max Weisbuch from Tufts University in Massachusetts used uh, popular TV shows to observe the body language of actors. The study found strong anti-black bias, even though the black and white characters in the programs were social and economic peers. 10-second video clips were created with audio removed and one character ingeniously cropped out so that their race was not apparent. Viewing the clips, impartial observers found that positive body language, such as smiling, nodding, and leaning in when talking, was far less common when white actors interacted with their black rather than white counterparts. Nalini Ambadi, one of the co-authors of the study, bluntly stated in an interview that black characters were, quote, less liked non-verbally than white characters, end quote. Such negative feelings portrayed by the unconscious interaction between actors, which is a form of anti-black, pro-white bias, have a direct impact on the rest of us. In another phase of the study, the authors found that viewers were, were negatively affected by what they were viewing. Watching such subtly pro-white clips from TV shows, normally formatted with appropriate characters visible, resulted in higher pro-white scores on tests that measure unconscious bias. 
Putting this impact into context, according to the study, the 11 TV shows had an average weekly audience of 9 million Americans each. This hints at the enormous impact of media alone in reinforcing existing racial bias in all of our lives. So what's going on? Why all this body language bias? It's a stretch to believe that across 11 different TV shows, directors overtly and consistently gave their white actors directions to single out their black peers for subtle negativity. That would be plain weird. But the researchers did indicate that they were uncertain whether the negative body language was scripted by directors, an innate reaction by white actors, or some combination of both. For a number of years, my creative outlet was independent filmmaking, and I'm aware that the actor's instrument is their body. Accessing unconscious reactions and emotions is the real craft behind the work. It wouldn't be... It wouldn't be difficult to argue that the study did reflect the unconscious pro-white bias the actors held, and why shouldn't it? Actors live in the same society as the rest of us. Their job is to express their unconscious feelings convincingly to create believable and real characters. As the next chapter we'll explore, we all possess unconscious bias. Anti-black prejudice, to a greater or a lesser degree, uh, has been widely absorbed by North Americans. It would make sense, then, that actors who are trained to unleash their unconscious through body language would more readily reveal such bias. These performers, in essence, serve as cultural mirrors. They reflect back something unpretty that exists inside all of us. To manage rather than be controlled by our feelings, then, we need to develop an early warning system to the emotions bubbling below the surface of awareness. Self-awareness is the tool required for such advanced uh, detection, the foundation upon which all other inner skills are built. Inner skill one, self-awareness. According to Michael Inslicht, a neuroscientist at the University of Toronto, Scarborough, Quote, there, is there is substantial evidence that those with more executive control are able to regulate their prejudiced responses. People who are better able to focus their attention and manage their emotions tend to be people who are able to regulate their stereotyped associations. End quote. Executive control refers to the work of the prefrontal cortex, including planning, evaluating, thinking about ourselves, and impulse control. And executive control is premised, uh, premised sorry, on self-awareness, the starting point for inner skill development. Self-awareness starts with attentiveness to our own emotions and needs. It includes knowing our, strength, our strengths and weaknesses, as well as having a strong sense of our worth and capabilities. It is the ability to self-reflect, follow our instincts and gut reactions, and be aware of the impact we have on others and the world around us, and of their, and of their impact on us. Even with a good handle on our unconscious self... Sorry. Even with a good handle on our conscious selves, it's the elusive unconscious parts that live in the shadows of awareness. Learning to direct our focused attention to the internal workings of our mind is critical to living a life where our actions and choices are aligned with our values, especially regarding issues of racial difference and, and inclusions. Researcher and psychiatrist Dan Siegel argues that developing such inner knowledge, what he calls mind sight, helps us name and tame our emotions so that we know how and when to constructively process and express them. Um, it also helps us counter the sweeping emotional charges that underlie intergroup interactions, especially when there's competition or conflict. For example, such insights might have been useful to the leadership at Eruville as they began developing an unnecessarily inflammatory town charter in reaction to a perceived but non-existent threat of outsiders. The most extensive process for developing self-awareness that I'm aware of also happens to be the second inner skill, mindfulness meditation. This technique helps this technique offers simple exercises for the brain that include attention to breathing, body sensations, and relaxation. So inner skill two, mindfulness meditation. Prejudice and stereotypes, as we've seen, are simply natural habits. As such, they are subject to neuroplasticity. They're flexible and can be altered through, such, or through conscious attention. 
Mindfulness meditation has been shown to help change negative habits of the mind. It is the tried and true method of over two millennia for improving over our focused concentration. It's a specific form of attention that emphasizes our here and now experience. Mindfulness meditation is about being aware of what is happening in both the mind and the body without reacting or judging. The Easter, this Eastern contemplative tradition ha has spread across the Western world over the last several decades. It has been modified for use in a variety of non-religious settings, including healthcare, personal growth, general stress relief, and leadership development. In his book, Mindsight, uh, The New Science of Personal Transformation, Dan Siegel discusses the many benefits of, mindful of mindfulness meditation. It can enhance resilience, our ability to bounce back from hardships, helping us tilt toward rather than away from challenging situations or people. Further, from a neuroscience perspective, uh, studies on long-term meditators suggest that we can literally grow and thicken the fibers in our prefrontal cortex through mindfulness practices, thereby enhancing our cognitive and emotional capacities. There are many ways to learn more about mindfulness meditation, resources by teachers such as... Uh, I'm going to try my best. Thich Nhat Han, Pema Chodron, and the Dalai Lama are readily available, and there are local practitioners in many small and large urban centers. The most rigorously tested technique I'm familiar with is the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction MBSR program developed by John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Dr. Kabat-Zinn has written a number of books on the topic and has helped spread mindfulness across the healthcare sector. Other strategies for developing self-awareness. Many strategies besides meditation can also help us develop self-awareness broadly and recognition of our own psychological patterns specifically. Although beyond the scope of this book, the following may offer some starting points. Notice your own body language and tone of voice at regular intervals during the day. Track especially what happens when you get anxious, uncertain, or upset. Clench fists, irregular breathing, obsessive behaviors, or thoughts, for example. Take three to five opportunities daily to notice the shifts in your emotional state. Develop a broader palette of words to describe primary feelings, as well as secondary ones. Recognize what issues, people, and situations emotionally trigger you into a state of fight, flight, freeze, spawn, especially regarding issues of racial difference. Everyone goes somewhere emotionally off-center when triggered. Where do you go? Keep track of daily events in a journal. Review them over time to identify your patterns of choices, reactions, and behaviors. Get feedback from trusted others. Uh, ask them specifically to help you consider perspectives that may be in your personal blind spots. Questions to spark racial pattern recognition regarding our identities and differences can also help enhance our self-awareness. The following example list, the following sample questions are adapted from cultural proficiency educator Randall Lindsay and his colleagues. Uh, one, to what social identity groups, including race, gender, class, sexual orientation, and ability, do I belong? Two, how are the institutions and organizations in this country influenced by the dominant, dominant ethno-racial culture? Three, how has my race and identity helped or hindered my progress in society in small or big ways? Four, how does race and social identity help or hinder people in my organization or relevant situation? And five, how does my perceived status based on social identity in an organization or society at large affect my behavior and motivation to achieve? In general, how might perceived status affect behavior and motivation to achieve? Besides these reflection questions, what new learning from this chapter helps expand your racial pa pattern recognition toolkit? What are systemic patterns due to socialization in mainstream culture and institutions? What new learning may be also useful in developing your psychological pattern recognition skills, those rooted in the neurobiology of humans? 
it's not easy to confront parts of ourselves that are that we are less aware of or that are contradictory to our espoused values. It can fuel painful emotions such as guilt, shame, anger, or defensiveness. This is where deep diversity's compassionate approach becomes important. Self-compassion helps us observe ourselves with curiosity rather than judgment. It's the salve to lessen the painful sting of our mistakes so we don't beat ourselves up. Yet it still holds us accountable. Compassion is essential. Without it, we may not be able to focus our attention long enough to learn about and unlearn some bad habits about relating to others. Finally, the key to developing any skill is practice and repetition. Although this may seem obvious, it's still worth mentioning. Persevering is the hardest part of any habit-breaking and forming process. If you're like me, it's an imperfect series of forward and backward steps. So practice noticing your body language and breathing, even if there's a stretch of days in which you don't. Continue to ask yourself about the impact of your social identity on each situation, even if it's an afterthought. Practice, rinse, repeat, do this until it becomes automatic. Acknowledge this, acknowledging this challenge from the onset may help us push through periods of inconsistency without getting demoralized. In this case, fake it till you make it is a completely acceptable principle. It may also be the most realistic path of learning for most of us.